All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. Welcome back. I, I'm guessing for most of you, I know for most of you, but if it's your first Sunday, welcome to you, especially to our, to our church. Uh, really glad to have you here, as Spence was saying uh, earlier as well. And uh, to, um, yeah, just to do church with us and, and learn. If you're brand new to the faith, even, uh, maybe to just continue to ask questions and, and learn about the Bible, saying about Christ. And that's really what we're doing through Judges right now. Uh, and, and Highland did a great job, actually, kind of summarizing the whole thing. Uh, today's passage in, in a few sentences, that's a really, really dark passage. And that's, you know, you've been here for Judges, you read the book, it's like, well, come on, that's like every week. And it is. Uh, but it really is that. Uh, today, it, it, things, um, downward spiral, it is, it, this is a subtitle you'll see in a lot of commentaries on Judges, is Judges is the book of the downward spiral. In other, in other words, things get worse with the people of Israel, with the surrounding nations, and with the Judges. Things get worse as well, character-wise, and we're going to see that today with the character of, of Jephthah. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, if you know where it is, it's the seventh book of the Bible, uh, right after Joshua, right before Ruth uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, so go ahead and flip there. It's around page 200 or so, I think, in the few Bibles. Uh, and I think the page number's on your sermon inserts too, if you want to turn directly to it. But Judges 11 today, 1 to 9, and then 29 to 40. Jephthah is the judge's name. Uh, he's an exile judge who makes a tragic vow, and, and Highland talked about how he lost his daughter with it, so we'll, we'll talk about those two pieces. Uh, but a couple of things on just how to read this book to remind most of you, uh, and maybe teach some of you as well if this is a brand new thing. When we talk about biblical theology and how the Bible hangs together. These are stories that happen in history that are theological and historical in nature that set the stage for the fulfillment of them, which is Jesus Christ. So in that, in that regard, they're prophetic in, in their scope their prophetic narrative. And the whole Testament is, is wrapped up this way. We know this because the Bible itself reads itself this way. So when, when Jesus speaks and talks about the Old Testament, when Paul writes, the apostle who wrote half the New Testament, and John, James, all these guys, when they're writing, they're writing about these stories in, in a new kind of Jesus, Jesus-y light, as if they were telling a great story and preparing the way uh, for, for Christ, who is, as we've been saying in this series, the ultimate judge. And these are judges, not in a courtroom sense, to be clear, if you're brand new to this book, but in, in a military captain, kind of tribal chieftain way, they fight on behalf of the people of Israel. And so in that regard, they're savior figures. And so really what Judges is, is just a series of narratives in the Old Testament that, that have to do with God showing grace to his people. And in that way, they set the stage for when God would ultimately show grace and love to his people, and that's through Jesus Christ. So Jesus, in that regard, is the ultimate judge. God cares deeply, then, uh, about uh, showing this off ahead of time. The cheat sheet we've been, given, we, we've been seeing, I've been giving you guys uh, interpretationally. I say, albeit crude here in parentheses, because there's more to say about judges than this. Uh, but basically, this is how to read it, um, you know, with some caveats here and there and asterisks and all of that. But the judges ahead of time are pictures of Christ. Christ is the ultimate deliverer. He's the ultimate redeemer, which means to buy back from slavery. In this context, sin is still the problem in the Old Testament context, but they have physical kind of out there problems as well, these other nations that are enslaving them. And so this is kind of the historical piece to it that whisper the greater problem. So Israel, the people of Israel, the nation, and sometimes the judges too, as we, as we just said, point to us. They're a microcosm of the human experience. Other nations are then a picture of the greatest of problems, sin and death, that God's ultimately out to fix and redeem and then having rest or peace in the land, the promised land that God is in process of giving his people throughout these books, this kind of section of books in the Old Testament, Judges is just a big piece to this, is also a picture of Christ. 
and salvation experience. So this last piece I've added for today as a reminder, this is becoming a little more of a thing in these uh, latter narratives in the book where it wasn't as much in the beginning, but especially now, is what the first two lines in the cheat sheet here, um, but to see that the judges in particular then are both a microcosm of the human race, so their picture of us, and a whisper of the ultimate human and judge or savior figure, Jesus Christ, at the same time, which can kind of you know, convolute and make these tricky passages to read. If we're looking for like what's the point, we might miss it. If we look for what are the, the series of points that all together, kind of in this like you know, constellation sort of way together, point us ahead to uh, New Testament reality and help tell a greater story, not just the story they're telling kind of right here, but a greater story, uh, then we can see the more nuanced uh, way that these narratives hang together and God's intent in those. And so I say this today uh, for, I know, a reminder for a lot of you, for some of you that's brand new, this book just won't make sense without Jesus. The Old Testament won't make sense without Jesus. There, it, he, he is the reality that casts the shadow uh, of God's plan backwards into history, and so without the reality of Christ, these stories wouldn't exist. They mean nothing. There's no moral lesson in them without Christ. I mean, he is the goal. He's, he's the final yes to all of God's promises. He's the final judge to all of God's judges. He's the final song to all of God's psalms. He's everything. He's the final sacrifice. We'll see a lot of this today come up with Jephthah in mind as, as uh, kind of the, the guy in focus, but there is a lot more to that as well. So as we read then, ask these questions. Where do you see this come out, and, um, and then we'll, uh, we'll come back and highlight a few. There's actually a lot of things going on. It's a great passage. I'd forgotten how great this passage was. It's a dark stain, but I love when God does this. It's like taking the darkest of stains and redeeming it and, and making it important. And actually, really, if you're not a Christian yet, this is an excellent passage for you to be here for today, to understand what the faith is all about, what, what God is doing at this juncture in human history and how he's telling us about what Christ did for us. And so we'll talk about the center of the faith through this kind of unsuspecting narrative uh, tucked way back in the depths and, and kind of dark corners of um, Old Testament narrative. So let's read to begin. I'm, I'm skipping a middle section, so just for clarity, if you're reading your Bibles, we're skipping the middle part, uh, for, just mostly for time's sake, but we'll get the gist today. Judges 11, 1 to 9, and then 29 to 40. So let's... let's uh, read this in full. And Shelley, can you please advance the slides after this one, just through the reading? Thanks. So verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was a son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Eroer to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. <clears throat> then Jephthah came home to Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to a father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. All right, so kind of Debbie Downer passage, isn't it? Uh, on a, a number of levels. So let's, let's go back into this now and talk about this basically from, from two angles because there's two major components in, in this story. One, Jephthah is the exiled, rejected judge called upon to deliver. So rejected by his brothers, called upon to deliver. We'll talk about that piece. And then when he's delivering, he makes this vow, this deal with God, like in Highland was alluding to this as well, this, uh, and I, some of your Bibles, I think, had a subtitle called Tragic Vow, which is, I always think it's funny because it's like the biggest understatement ever, tragic. It's like not even uh, in the ballpark of what's really going on there. But anyway, it is tragic. It's, it's a tragic um, surprise almost of a vow. It's just stupid. It's out of nowhere. We'll talk about this. But uh, where he says, God, if you allow me to win, I'll sacrifice whatever walks out of my house. Uh, and then it's his daughter. He's surprised. He laments. Says, oh, I can't take my vow back. And and so he lets her weep for her virginity and with her friends. And two months later, he sacrifices her as a burnt offering uh, to the Lord. Not taking this back to God, reneging, saying, what was I thinking? This is not what you ask of your people to vow this way. None of that kind of stays the course and, and does this horrific thing that God is clearly uh, against. Even though it's silent here, clearly elsewhere in the scriptures against. So let's look at those two themes then through what, and this goes back to that cheat sheet idea I was, ta I was talking to you guys about before, the dual lenses of Jephthah the Christ figure and Jephthah the sinner, Jephthah the man, Jephthah the human, and see ourselves uh, in, in that as well. So we'll start with the Christ figure piece. It's actually the third thing I want to come back to. We'll talk more about Jephthah's daughter uh, on kind of a, a third level after that, but these uh, big two things we'll start with. So first, Jephthah the Christ figure. Verse 2 again, Gilead's wife, so Gilead, this guy, uh, has Jephthah kind of via a, a prostitute. And so he has half-brothers uh, by, by way of Gilead's wife who bore him sons. And so it says when Gilead's wife bore him sons, when, when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said, you shall not have inheritance, uh, peace of this land, 
or just our inheritance, in our father's house, for you are the son of this prostitute or uh, another woman. So uh, clearly rejected, exiled, and outcast, and, and it goes on. Uh, we'll keep reading here. But a little more recap on this that's important. Uh, and I said some of this already, but um, we've been talking a ton in this series about how the Old Testament, and, and Judges is this great example of this, is full of wars and sometimes really intense conflict. Judges is great because it's like cyclical. It's repeated. And that's in, it's intentionally the case to make a point, but if you go outside Judges, it, it's just clear. Joshua has this, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, uh, it, it's a huge piece. The prophets talk about it when exile happens from that final time in Babylon. It's a big deal. The Old Testament's full of wars. And one reason we've been saying in this series, one reason it is, is because the whole Bible's about a war. Good versus evil. God and Jesus versus the devil and his angels. Light versus darkness. That's the whole story. And so these stories, like in Judges 11, these smaller stories about Israel's particular physical battles against certain people groups like the Ammonites, this is key, are not aberrations. They're not aberrations. And they get treated that way sometimes when, and for some of it, for some of you even, it might just be because you're branded the Bible. And that's great. You're just kind of reading this for the first time. But for those that have read the whole story and know what the overarching kind of whole point is, these are not out of left field, or at least they shouldn't be, because the whole book's about a war. And so these smaller than these smaller wars, basically or battles or conflicts, are glimpses of a greater spiritual war or, or reality. And so in that, the judges, as we already said a lot today, but the judges help to tell this story in a Christ-pointing way. So with that in mind then, think about Jephthah. And here it's interesting, the first part of chapter 11 takes time to explain what type of judge Jephthah was. Didn't have to do that. The whole thing about rejection, the whole thing about being a son of a prostitute, the whole thing about having these half-brothers and, that are hating him and casting him out and going back and asking him, well, we changed our mind. You're a mighty warrior. We can't fight without you. All that stuff didn't have to be said if the ultimate point was just to tell history just to tell a story about fighting, fighting these, these Ammonites. But if the point is Christ, then actually the, these kind of pre-war descriptions of who the guy is are really important. So what type of judge is Jephthah? He was a reject, an outcast, and an exile, but specifically rejected by his own brothers. Who is this starting to sound like? It's a theme we see elsewhere in the Old Testament, too, actually, like in the stories of Joseph, if you know that story in Genesis, and David, uh, both rejected by their brothers, or in David's case, his family, his sons, uh, like Abimelech, and others who rise up and try to take the throne from him, and, and others as well. There's a couple of big ones. And Jephthah's a part of this, like, God's chosen leader being rejected by the people of Israel theme, and even by Israelites and, and family within their very household. But ultimately, this is what we mean when we talk about how to read the Bible. All of this is here for the sake of Jesus, who himself was not only dismissed and rejected based on his identity as a Nazarene, like in John, in the New Testament, John 1.46, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was a good-for-nothing town. Mark 6, Jesus has this kind of classic thing where he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and except among his relatives and in his own household. So Jesus experienced this firsthand 
just by, by a way of his identity as, as a Nazarite, and people that just said, this guy's calling himself the son of God? Isn't he Joseph's son? The carpenter? Like, I knew him when he was drooling, like, out of his mouth when he's trying to eat food for the first time. Like, I, that's, that's the guy. Prophet's not without honor, except in, uh, in and among his hometown and amongst his, his relatives. So, but not only is, is Jesus rejected in, in this way, we see in Matthew 2, he spent time in exile in Egypt, fleeing uh, the wrath of Herod with his parents. Matthew 2 again talks about that. But ultimately, he was rejected as the Son of God and put on a cross. So in, in that way, he saved. In that way, he, he delivered. And, so, and that's what Judges 11 is doing. This is going to be a big theme this morning we'll come back to. Uh, and we have seen it in this series, but it's becoming more clear with Jephthah. Because again, we could look at so many other places like this in the book too, but we could ask, why is this detail here? Is it incidental? All the stuff about him being rejected? And, and it's not. It's giving us a greater, more progressive picture, and this is the thing I was alluding to, of how exactly God will ultimately save his people. And that is, again, through a spirit-empowered, rejected judge of some kind, who actually, it says here, hangs out with worthless fellows. Did you guys notice that little addition in the beginning? It's kind of like, who are those guys? You know, poor, poor. I always thought of that with the, the labeled sinners in the New, T- New Testament as well. Like, there's tax collectors and, you know, other people who are named. And then there's this group of people called sinners. And all, everyone's a sinner. But there's, there's this special group got the label, like, oh, you're, you're a sinner amongst sinners. So it's kind of a tough draw. But anyway, <clears throat> these worthless fellows, he goes to. So this is what we're seeing. A, a spirit-empowered, rejected judge who hangs out with worthless fellows. In other words, sinners. Sinners, which even gets better news for us, too, as worthless fellows ourselves, sinners ourselves. We see this play out a lot in Jesus' ministry. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. The, the religious good people weren't. They were offended at his grace filled. It's not about you. You can't come to me except the Father draws you. You can't approach me on your own type message. But people who saw their need flocked to him. And so it starts to become good news. Even this whisper in Jephthah's story, but he was a rejected judge, a leader who hangs out with worthless fellows. What that Christ-pointing kind of prophecy looks ahead to is something like this. And through it to, to the cross, when, when Christ would die for us and not just hang out with us, but really draw near to us through his shed blood and his atoning, reconciling, advocating death for worthless fellows. Uh, like, like us. He's also showing grace in this story. Maybe you noticed this too, but whenever his brothers go back and say, well, now we need you to fight, did you notice his response? You know, there's no hesitation, really. There's no, like, there's no, there's no way I'm going to fight for you. You guys rejected me. You hated me. He acknowledges that, but there's no hesitation that, yes, I will do it. There's kindness and there's willingness to do it. And it's the same with Jesus. This is why these narratives are here. So if you're asking, what is Jesus like? Jephthah gives us a hint. If you're forgetting what Jesus is like, Jephthah gives us a hint. Or if you remember but just need to hear it again, like the, like the rest of us, Jephthah gives us a hint. Because if Jephthah says, yes, I'll fight for you, ones who hated me and kicked me out and treated me like, like an outcast, and he's a sinner, 
how much more will Jesus do it? It's a, it's a classic biblical how much more then argument, which you see a lot in, in the Bible. If this person did it and they're a sinner, how much more will Jesus, who's not a sinner, who's perfect, who is the, the essence, the epitome of the love of God and the mercy of God? Isaiah 53 3 is pro- more direct prophecy about Jesus in the Old Testament. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Again, the, the good news here, and I'm saying this to Christians and non-Christians alike, this is how this is preaching to us. If, if the brothers go to Jephthah and say, will you fight for me, even though they have rejected, what this is pointing to is, then we can go to Jesus and say, will you fight my sin for me? Will you fight my nightmares? Will you fight my propensity to doubt? Will you fight my addictions, my, my, my fears? Will you fight dark angels? For me, fight my oppressors? Will you ultimately wrestle death for me? Even though I've rejected you, even though I act like you're not there, even though I harm others and myself daily, what's his answer according to Judges 11? Yes! His answer is always yes, you guys, always. It's always I'm willing which you see Jesus use those words to people who are ask, asking that question about healing. Are you willing and able? Jesus says, yes, I'm willing. Rest in my kindness. Receive my grace. Know that I'm going to become familiar with pain for you on that cross. Rejected unto death all for you. So then we switch this to this next piece, Jeff to the man. Uh, the rash vow making legalist. That's the title. So anyway, he's, well, let me first remind you. So in, in verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. What he means by that, it qualifies it here. I will offer it up for a, a burnt offering. It will become a sacrifice to, to the Lord. So, um, in some, some of your translations may have said whoever. The ESV says whatever. It actually probably is whoever. You might have a footnote in your Bibles that say, you know, um, could mean whoever if it says whatever. That's what the ESV, the translation we use, uh, says. Uh, linguistically, it's difficult, and uh, there's context here that seems to indicate it's probably a whoever, not a whatever, because one perspective on this is, well, he was thinking animal. He could have been thinking human sacrifice, uh, that would be nice in one sense to, to have that. And maybe that's the case, but he's still being super stupid and rash here. And, uh, you know, but it seems like it's a whoever. He's talking about coming out of his house. Uh, and there's a whole, yeah, another, I can give you a stack of books if you want to just look into that with basically no answers <laughs> other than this is complicated. Uh, but if you're interested, I'd love to talk to you more about, not just hand you books, but I'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, but basically, it's probably a whoever uh, comes out. So, now we're going to turn to that then and look at this vow um, that, again, comes out of nowhere, it seems, right? He, he seems like he's a man of such grace and confidence and wisdom and, and might, full of the spirit of the Lord. And this is an important piece. Please hear this. We'll come back to this. I don't have it on screen. But in Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, he is listed amongst the ranks of the faithful of the Old Testament. He's celebrated as a man of faith and trust in God. 
So it's like of all the things they think if you're like recounting history, you know, from kind of a New Testament perspective, which is theology too, not just history, obviously, but it's, uh, you think you'd maybe mention the vow and say don't do that or something, you know, but the thing it's that they remember him about is he was a man of deep trust in God. Be like that. So anyway, he's all of those things, but then he all of a sudden turns to this contractual idea of how God works. Now, I know this whole thing elicits a ton of questions, you know, like, why would he do this at all? Why would he say whoever? Was it just stupidity? Uh, maybe even why didn't God intervene? Because he clearly doesn't endorse this, as we see elsewhere, human sacrifice. Uh, in, in even vow making, we'll talk about that, but human sacrifice in Scripture. But again, we just don't totally know a, a lot here, other than this is a huge regression for Jephthah's character, kind of in, in real time. He apparently comes back to, to being a faith-filled man later, which is why Hebrews records him that way, but here it's this huge, huge regression. The Spirit of God was upon him. Why was that not enough? And so it's clearly sin, but the question is in what way? It's human sacrifice, uh, it's, it's rash, it's, it's, it's stupidity, but, but a big part of it, the less clear piece that's just as much a part of this that we need to talk about is in terms of what kind of sin's going on here, is his perspective on how to relate to God changes. From receiving as a gift the call to be a judge, not based on his amazing character, but God's love and choice, to making a deal with him to ensure his blessing. Or to put it more simply, in other biblical terms, he's moving from grace to works. So where, in other words, where was Jephthah's prayer that just said, God, I'm not worthy to have you strengthen my hand for this battle, but please save me and save us from this great wickedness anyway to show that it's your love and your grace and your power that saves and not us. Where is that prayer? Instead, his vow implies we can pay God back. His vow implies God might even need us for something. His vow implies God's lacking in some way. So to fast forward, you know, really far ahead here to the New Testament, um, lots to say about this topic, but in the New Testament, Jesus addresses this idea of vow making. It just really clearly says, but I say to you, this is a kingdom of God value to, that as Christians now we look at and say this is a principle for living. Do not take an oath at all. And what he's saying is, it's not that there's never a time to take a vow. We do at weddings and stuff like that, and it's fine to, there's time to make promises. But in general, Christians realize, or should realize, their inability to keep promises well. And we centralize our faith more on God's promises to us, rather than ours to him. This, this is an extremely important spiritual principle to understand for just Christian living, but if you're not a Christian yet, to understand this about what's central to the Christian faith. It's not this religious vow-making, God, if you do this, and I'll do this kind of thing. It's the, it's the opposite of that. It's simply resting on his promises, which come down in the form of a man from heaven, the Son of God, who heal and teach, and who makes promises to us to save us in spite of our sin, and who capitalizes on that. We talk about that, we sing about it, we preach about it, we eat it in communion, we nourish ourselves on that idea, and that's it. So that we're saved not by our works, our ability, our promises, but by grace, 
His promises to save us in spite of ourselves. There's a way then to believe that, but to live as though that's true in our spirituality as well. And part of this side of it is don't, not making vows to God and even being careful with the types of promises that, that we make, understanding our sin, our flakiness, our selfishness, and instead just being careful with our words so that we're pointing more to him than us. So there's a huge lesson here for us, and it's, not, it's uh, more of a lesson, or it's more of a warning than a lesson. It's kind of both. But the, the lesson here is Jephthah shifted from a man of faith to a man of works or, or unfaith because this is a warning for those of you who are faith-filled or, or Christians here today, but faith-filled people who trust in Jesus for, for salvation. Because remember, being a person of non-faith isn't like atheism, believing God's not there, uh, essentially. But believing God is there and there's something we can do to appease him. That's unfaith. That's the, that's the opposite of faith. Not atheism, God's not there, but oh, God's there, but I think there's something I can do to make him happy or I, I can appease him or I can work my way unto him or my good works, apart from his kind of grace and strength, kind of matter in the equation of my salvation. That's unfaith. That's, that's the opposite of faith. Jephthah shifted. For us as Christians, where are we? This is, this is the question is, what are we going to do with that? Are we shifting? There's a, a command in 1 Timothy something something, which, which uh, Paul says to Timothy, Christian, uh, or Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine, your, your, so this, this teaching, watch the teaching closely, like it's under a microscope. Watch your life and watch the doctrine or the teaching of the faith really closely. Watch it. And so, you know, one of the questions that, you know, it, it, this, is a, this is a hard thing. It's not meant to be a burden. It's meant to be a, still a probing. This takes effort. It's meant to be an encouragement, something we do. So on one level, do we do that? Do you have space for that? The church has space for this, but... Are you looking at your life and what you believe closely? Are you testing yourselves, like 2 Corinthians 13 something says? Uh, it says that, are you examining yourself and testing yourself to see if you're in the faith? Christians, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about yourself and sin and God's character? Is it accurate? Is it in line with this? Or is it just what, kind of what we want it to be? Are we in any way shifting? In other words, don't make vows to God. Don't expect good deeds to be followed by blessings. That's not grace. Don't expect your, your good days to be followed by a lot of physical health necessarily. I mean, maybe, but it might not because you're not being paid back for something. You're receiving his gift, not being paid back and, you know, and, and vice versa. And don't expect your sins, your bad days, to be followed by curses and sickness. That's not grace either. God's the same in both of those. At least this is the, the principle of the gospel that we need to really check our heart. And like, do we believe that? Do you ever, are you ever tempted to believe that your sufferings are punishment from God? That's not gospel. That's not grace. That's contractual. That's not the New Testament. The gospel's not tit for tat. It's simply receiving God's unending supply of love without him having any expectation for reciprocation. Because there's nothing, nothing, nothing we can give him. 
And he loves to share himself with us and, and give good gifts like a father to a, a son or daughter. So, so to Christians now, we can live in light of that grace, but don't think that that living in light of that grace and loving him in return is paying him back. There's a difference there. Living in light of what he's done for you and paying God back are like opposite ends of the solar system. I mean, they're not even, not even close. We can't pay back. We receive, we receive, we receive. That can change us, but our lives are never payback. They're, they're living out of rather than paying, paying him back. God has not sent his son in to die only to say later, now what can you do for me? That just cheapens the whole thing. And it's not anywhere in this book, nor does God ever imply that. And here in, in Judges 11, it's clear, Jephthah's making a bad decision. This is, you know, not something to follow and copy. You know, like, oh, you know, this ju- judge did this, and he's called a man of faith in the New Testament, so I should go make vows now too or something. Uh, it's a bad example, and bad things happen because of it. God is against it. What God wants is us to live in light of the promises he makes to us. So, Christian, think about that. Do, how do you do that? How's your way of thinking, your lifestyle, like, practice that in, in church, in community, and, and individually? All right, so one last thing here before we wrap up. We'll spend some time on it. It's almost like we needed one more reminder of this whole thing. And God speaks yet again at the end of this passage. Not to endorse Jephthah's actions here, but to use them to contrast as starkly as possible with Jephthah's vow-making propensities. And he does this, I think, in, this is what I love about the Bible in general, but about this passage. He does this in maybe the most unsuspecting, almost offensive way possible by saying, you think Jephthah is the only Christ figure in this passage? And also, Am I not able to redeem evil for good? Remember this principle. Jesus fulfills everything in the Old Testament, including and sometimes especially the worst parts. He he absorbs them. He acts as the finish line for them. He serves as the true and better version of them, not just because he's seeking to eradicate them, to bring an end to them, but he's also intending to take them on and wear them because they're pictures of our evil, to wear them for us on the cross, and in that way bring an end to evil. All right, so here's what I mean. Consider Jephthah's daughter. Jephthah's daughter is not only a human sacrifice who was associated narratively and contextually with the deliverance of God's people from their enemies, but she is all these things that Christ is on a higher level uh, later. They're both unmarried, they're both innocent, Jesus is actually more than that, he's sinless. They're both the only child of a father. Uh, they're both uh, wept for, and they, they, they weep with, with companions. They're both obedient to their fathers, which means they're willing sacrifices. And they're wept for by the daughters of Israel, or in Jesus' case in Luke 23, the daughters of Jerusalem. In Luke 20, actually I'll read that one. In Luke 23 it says, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned, and, and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. This is just like in Judges 11 where Jephthah's daughter is saying, uh, and weeping with, and there's this commemoration, four days a year, the daughters of Jerusalem, the daughters of Israel, same phrase, direct hearkening back to that in Luke 23, the daughters of Israel weep for, not just anybody, but this, this innocent, 
willing sacrifice. And, and they weeped for her in her impending, unjust, untimely death, just like in Christ's case. So I'm not going to go through all these in depth today. I throw them up here quick just kind of for, for you and for you to see this, that this is not a stab in the dark. This is intentionally here, uh, not to justify Jephthah's actions, it's sin, but to show that God can redeem the worst of things to tell us something about his son and the how behind the what of salvation, like I talked about before. The what is God's going to save us from our worst nightmares. The what is God's going to destroy evil. The what is God's going to de-oppress us from our sins and death. The how is through a human sacrifice. The how is through an innocent sacrifice. The how is through a willing sacrifice. The how is through a wept-for sacrifice. The how is through an obedient one. And so the idea here then is to see this, this is the bigger thing, I could have made another row for this, but sacrifice associated with deliverance. It's not just Jephthah's rejection, but his daughter's death that highlight this great how behind the what. God is redeeming evil for good here. And judges, again, progressively more clear on this how. The final judge, the final act of deliverance must accompany rejection and must accompany untimely death. <clears throat> Last week we looked at Luke 24 as well, 6 to 7 for Easter, which says, the angels to the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man, or Jesus, must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. He must be crucified and he must be raised on the third day. And so taking this back to Judges 11, you see how even in the Old Testament, this heightens the problem and heightens the solution. Meaning, our problem is not just out there. The Ammonites are not our problem. The, the Egyptians or Philistines or Moabites or whatever the enemy is in Judges, that's not our problem. Nor was it Israel's true problem. The problem is Jephthah making stupid, bad theological, rash, vow-making, legalistic decisions. He had a wrong view of God. He sinned. He murdered his daughter. That's the problem. Way worse than the Ammonites. And so when we heighten the problem like that, when sin is not just out there, but sin is here, this is why God has not just come into the world to wage holy war against dark angels and snap his fingers. He does do that through his son, and we're a part of that war. It's a revelation theme. We're a part of that. But this is why he had to become human, because he had to, and, and he must be delivered over as a human like us who was perfect to die innocently for humans. He couldn't do that without becoming a human. Humans die for humans. He became what he was going to atone or fix. He became human like us. Judges 11 talks about this and whispers it. And Jephthah's daughter's doing that here. It's actually interesting. You also see this, this instance of substitution because why didn't Jephthah die? He's the worst guy. Did you think about that when you're reading? Why didn't Jephthah die? Basically what's happened here at the end of the story is there's an innocent sacrifice and a sinner being spared. An innocent sacrifice and a sinner like Jephthah being spared. To point us ahead to God's true remedy for evil. A war against our sin and a war against the, the evil in here. Our impending death as well. 
And so in many ways, Jephthah's daughter is judging at a much higher level than Jephthah himself. At least she's pointing to that higher level. But, but the message is the same. Uh, God is getting as clear as, really in a lot of ways, as you can, you can get. The how behind the what. He's not just going to destroy evil. He's going to do it through his son. He's going to do it for us. He's going to do it through his innocent sacrifice. He has a plan for that. And Jephthah's worst, stupidest intentions were not outside of God's providential care. Though he's not endorsing it, he's, he's intending the evil for good. Like Genesis 50, 20 believe, uh, says, like, like he intends the cross for our good. He intends the evil of, of the cross for our good. He can even use this stupidity of this man uh, to send the best of messages ever. That Jesus died for you. That he was a willing sacrifice, like Jephthah's daughter was willing here, obedient to her father. So was Jesus obedient to God the Father for you. That's the gospel. That's what Christians believe or should. We put our faith in that, in him, in his promise, in his vow given to us that way. Every day. The message is the same. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins. So the conclusion really here, it, there's no copy Jephthah here, you know, other than to be a person of faith. And, and it's to believe. And the one this story points to, Christ. Believe, trust in him. And a couple of things that kind of flow from this, we'll just take a couple of minutes here and close. But it's okay, you know, when you read this, um, I think I mentioned you guys a couple of weeks ago and I was reading this in January to prep this. There's a couple instances in Judges where I, I was by myself in a, in a room in the study break up north and I like audibly gasped. Which, which I don't like audibly gasp a lot when I'm reading the Bible. Like, I like non-audibly gasp a lot sometimes. I don't audibly, like, oh, I just had to like put it down and like, you know, shake my head kind of thing, face palm kind of thing or something. But, and there's worse stuff coming than this, so get ready. It's, it gets a lot worse. But um, this, this is one of those things. So, but, but what I mean here by cringe factor, it's okay to cringe. It's actually good to cringe at these stories. We're supposed to kind of wallow in the evil here for a bit before we come out of it. But, but here's the thing. Let them, the stories, as you cringe with them, lead you to the most cringeworthy story of all in the Bible, which is not this one, but it's Jesus' torturous death for sinners on that cross on that first Good Friday evening 2,000 years ago. The death of God's Son helps make sense of these stories and vice versa. And this, this is what I mean by that. If the center of your Christian faith, or the Christian faith, if you're kind of considering this or trying to think it through as, as a, a non-Christian still, if the center of your Christian faith or the Christian faith is not the cross, Jesus' bloody death on that cross 2,000 years ago when his back was exposed, his lungs were exposed through the flagellum's slashes, when he slowly suffocated for six hours among criminals, naked, full of shame for six hours, the word, Jesus himself calls it an abomination, the, the darkest of times. The sun went out for crying out loud. It was so bad uh, at midday. If, if we're not led there, and so again, if, if the center of our Christian faith is not that, the cross, then these stories, Judges 11, probably have very little place in your life, probably have very little place in your Bible reading plans, and probably very little place in your overall theology. But if the cross is the center, 
these stories aren't just resolved or made sense of as we see how they are imaged beforehand, but the cross itself atones for them or fixes the evil and, and in that way resolves them too. So remember here with the second thing as well, with Jephthah's faith, we spent a lot of time on this today, but Hebrews 11, it talks about him as a man of faith. Uh, one question with this is, is your, your gospel, so when we talk about the, the costliness of God's forgiveness, God didn't just decide to forgive, he worked for it. He sent his son to die for you. That's how much he loves you. That's what, he ha- that's what had to be done. And so when we talk about Jephthah having faith, um, there's so many questions I could throw up here, but here's just one. Is your gospel big enough to cover the sins of a man who wrongfully sacrifices his daughter? Or what about a pedophile or sex trafficker or terrorist or that person you just can't stand at work? Is the blood of Christ big enough to cover them? The people that you just struggle to forgive or you think there's no way they're going to be saved in the end. Here's the scandal of the gospel. The worst people are being saved and some of the best people out there are not. Because grace is unfair. It's given, not earned. Sinners flocked to Jesus. Pastors hated him. Religious people of the day hated him. The last will be first, Jesus says. This is the scandal. If it's all about God giving, all about God choosing, all about God loving, all about God making vows and promises, not us to God, then, and the blood of God's Son is like the cleansing agent, the salve here, and it's sufficient, and it had to be done to save us from the true Ammonites, sin and death. But if it's God's ultimate provision, if these stories just point to that, then, then, then who can say it's not sufficient? But it also is a challenge. If you look at Jephthah, he's celebrated. Uh, not, his vow is not justified, but his faith is celebrated. One of the worst guys in the Bible is, is listed among the, these people who trusted in God and who were saved forever. If that's problematic, then just ask yourself why. Like, what does the gospel mean to you? It's possible it's more about your works than, than grace, and that's why it's problematic. So, but we all have to ask ourselves that. So it's not like, and just to summarize this, this last piece, um, the Bible's trying to pull punches here or to hide its true intent. Jesus is all over these pages so that we know, even from an Old Testament perspective, that God always intended to send his son to die as an innocent, rejected, wept for, and willing sacrifice for sinners. He always intended, even back here, a thousand years, this is written a thousand years before Christ, a thousand years before he was born, his intent was clear, it's actually quite clear, to send his son to die in a Jephthah's daughter, and a Jephthah, but also Jephthah's daughter kind of way, so that those sinners might be saved in true judge-like fashion from the Ammonites of sin and death. This, This is what this is about. It's a call to faith and belief, and to see God, this is what he's like but better, like the, the best parts of this, there's not a lot of good parts in this, but the best parts of this are heightened if, in Christ. The worst parts are worn by him to atone for them. Uh, it's, it's all about him and for him to serve the purpose of his gospel, uh, not ultimately for us. And so I think that's just the, the last thing I leave with you guys is to, to hear this not just as information, 
but to really believe that God wants you to know this today. This is not a coin we flipped in January to say, oh, I guess we'll talk about this and as if it's all arbitrary. God designs what we talk about as churches. Like this is his word for every, all, all of you in the room, Christian or not. This is how he's speaking to you and to me today through his word. There's an aspect of understanding judges, an aspect of how to live your life as a non-promise making but promise resting in, God's promise resting in person. And, and a, the, the how behind the what aspect of salvation that he really wants to underline in your heart and your life. He loves you. He died for you. He paid it all for you. And he's graciously inviting you to believe in him and trust in him and confess your sins to him and receive his vow of love. And when you and I do that, he promises we will be saved. So let's pray. God, thank you so much, uh, Father, for this passage that is difficult, but uh, you are a master at taking the hardest of things and making them about the most beautiful of things. Uh, That is exactly what the cross is, exactly what the empty tomb is, and so we should expect it to see elsewhere in the Bible too, which is all about those things in indirect ways, uh, if not direct. So, uh, Father, forgive us our sin, uh, forgive us our waywardness, Forgive us our, our um, perspective on spirituality that, that is um, vow-making, that, that, that is um, tit-for-tat, conditional. Um, God, the, the, the passage ends with Jephthah's daughter for a reason because all of that vow-making crap is passed up by an innocent sacrifice for a reason because the last word of God, the last word, the ultimate word of God in the Bible is Jesus, the ultimate daughter of Jephthah. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That, that's what we every day need to come back to because anything we do in life isn't good enough w- without him. Uh, you came into the world because there's no way for us to go up into heaven. You came down because we can't go up. Father, so help us to believe the gospel today, to receive it with thanksgiving, with faith, with humility, leaving all of our bad things but also all of our good things behind because without you, they're... They mean nothing. They're insufficient. It's all about you. Um, God, thank you for in the Bible taking the worst of things, making the best. In our life, please do that. Uh, God, redeem us, save us. Um, Use the hardest of things to bring about the most beautiful of resurrected type things. God, we pray. And in our church. Amen. Amen. Please stand and sing with us one more song. Running away when I hear you call Father, you were